0: That was all we could do at the time. We couldn't get along. We all knew that fairness was a bunch of shit. We all knew that we were getting screwed, so we couldn't sit down and create no more music. Up on Cripple Creek, all that collaboration was over. That was what Lee Von Helm had to say on the band's mindset during the 1973 sessions, which eventually led to their album Moondog Matinee. Now, in 1971, Rock of Ages had led to an unofficial hiatus for the band, Independently, the band worked on various projects, separately whether it was producing, writing, or performing. This is not to say that there was massive tension, various members of the band collaborated together on projects, but it just wasn't the band. There was definitely some burnout. There were also some attempts at getting the band back together to work on their next studio album, though none of those attempts led to anything fruitful. Richard hadn't written a song or at least presented a song to the group in some time, and Robbie wasn't offering up much either since he was hitting some serious writer's block. The group came to the conclusion that they just didn't have the material to complete something to their standard, and faced with that crossroad, they didn't force it. Rather, they just kept to themselves working on other projects. The band came out of touring retirement in 1973. It was reluctant, but they couldn't turn down a payday. Regardless of their output or lack thereof, in the last few years, there was a demand. Also, at this point, most of the guys were living off of royalties, which wasn't a chump change, but nonetheless, it was a massive payday after all. They were approached by promoters who said that they wanted the band to play another summer festival. This time, it would be a fairly small gathering at a racetrack in Watkins Glen, which was in upstate New York. However dubious the band remained, they took the plunge anyway. The project was dreamed up by Shelley Finkley and Jim Koplik, who had organized the Grateful Dead's Dylan Stadium concert in 1972, which also included a surprise jam with members of the Alman Brothers. The band would share the bill with the Grateful Dead and the Alman Brothers. Now, the band and the Dead had toured together and knew each other quite well from taking the Festival Express in 1970. The Alman Brothers called Georgia their home, but they had origins in Florida. Dwayne Allman had a successful earlier career as a session guitar player at Fame Studios and Muscle Shoals, recording with artists like King Curtis and Aretha Franklin. He was frustrated with the session work and began jamming with what later became his bandmates, including his brother Greg, in creating the Allman Brothers Band. If the band thought they had a hard time by the fame and success of the music world, the Allman Brothers' ascent was much, much harder. By the early 70s, they had begun to attract attention for their fusion of hard blues rock with a heavy hand of Southern themes and their live shows included long jams. However, heroin plagued the group. Dwayne Allman and Barry Oakley checked into rehab in 1971, and after exiting, Allman died in a savage high-speed motorcycle crash the next day. Agreeing to continue, Oakley struggled with Dwayne's death. He began using drugs again and drank heavily. One night, drunk and high, not far from where Dwayne had died, oakley on his motorcycle crashed into a side of a bus refusing to go to the hospital he succumbed to cerebral swelling from the skull fracture that he endured not long after regardless the Allman brothers carried on recording and had their most successful album yet the 1973s hit brothers and sisters now with the lineup secure the band regrouped in woodstock and began to rehearse Levon and Richard didn't enjoy rehearsing, but it was needed as it had been over a year since the group had played together. They had worked on their set list, which included, hopefully, a new song called Endless Highway, which would debut at the show. On July 28th, the band were airlifted into Summer Jam. However, it was uncertain that they'd play. Local authorities were trying to shut down the festival for a number of reasons, from clogged streets, sanitation, etc but local businesses and others in the area wanted to continue as it meant a massive boost in income. When the band got to the location and went up on stage, they asked Bill Graham if they could soundcheck. Graham pointed out to the hillside and there were already tens of thousands of people enjoying themselves in the sun, arriving before the festival had even started. Thus, the band went out and rehearsed in front of an audience. It was basically a free show, and the first shows that the band had played in some years. Each band ended up playing for over an hour in a pseudo show rehearsal. Here's a cut from one of the band's rehearsal numbers. (laughs) Now, the Grateful Dead ended up being the first ones to open the show, with their soundcheck becoming legendary, leading into a two-hour, two-set marathon with great renditions of songs including Sugary, Tennessee Jed, and Warfrat. And as per usual, the Dead also performed elongated jams. The weather was perfect, the atmosphere was a lot better than Woodstock a few years earlier, and hundreds of thousands of tickets were sold and it was estimated that the attendance was over 600,000. The audience was now enjoying themselves when the band took the stage for their two-hour set. It's
1: been such a long time for us, we'd like to introduce them to you. They're very close to us on
0: piano, Mr. Richard Manuel. On bass, <laughs> Mr. Rick Danko.
2: The incredible man on the
0: organ, Mr. Garth Hudson. Woo! On guitar, Mr. Robbie Robertson. Came in on drums, Mr. Levon Helm. Some very, very nice people play great music. Would you welcome, please, the band? started out with a cover of Back to Memphis, before launching into Loving You is Sweeter Than Ever, The Shape I'm In, Their Staple The Wait, and Stage Fright. Everything was going well and according to plan, the weather, the sound, the set. The band who had notoriously faced many problems when playing outdoor festivals were now hitting some luck. Well, it wasn't long before a thunderstorm rolled over the scene. People were getting drenched and covered in mud, and it was quickly becoming another woodstock. However, Garth Hudson decided to take the stage by himself and perform an improvised organ solo akin to the genetic method, until the rain let up and the band joined back on stage to segue into chest Fever. Take a listen. legendary performance led way into the band's covers of Don't You Tell Henry, their original The Rumor, as well as Time To Kill, and finishing the set up with a rendition of Upon Cripple Creek before the Allman Brothers took the stage. Overall, Watkins Glen was a success. According to Robert Santelli, Watkins Glen was the largest gathering of people in the history of the United States. In essence, that meant on July 28th one out of every 350 people living in America at the time were listening to the sounds of rock at the New York State racetrack. Feeding off of that energy of their live performance and feeling a lot more like a collective again and hoping to revive some of those creative juices needed to keep them on producing albums for Capitol Records, it was decided that an album of covers was the next logical step given the general reluctance of the group to get together and write original material. After all, it was the covers and performing as a bar band that made them the musicians that they were. It was the music that they grew up on, and they were confident in playing it. That was something that was appealing, especially to the fragile band. They entered Bearsville studio with a short list of songs to record. And of course, that list was full of R&B, blues, New Orleans inspired music, etc. A lot of the songs were originally songs that they covered when they were part of the Hawks or Levon and the Hawks. However, some were not. Some were more unique and obscure. First up on the album is Ain't Got No Home.
2: Ooh, ain't got no home. I know Ain't got no, oh, I know phase wrong.
0: I'm Written by rhythm and bluesman Clarence Henry. Henry was a New Orleans-based musician who learned piano as a child with Fats Domino and Professor Longhair being his major influences. In 52, he joined Bobby Mitchell and the Toppers, a local band playing trombone and piano. Henry developed his trademark croak, to improvise on one of his earliest biggest hits, It Ain't Got No Home, in one evening session in 1955. Chess Records heard the tune and released it, climbing the R&B charts and becoming a crossover hit on the US pop charts, hitting number 20. The popularity of the tune earned Henry the nickname Frogman and helped him begin his career. He continued to record and tour and had hits with Barbie Charles' I Don't Know Why But I Do and You Always Hurt The One You Love. Now, more on Ain't Got No Home, the song had an interesting twist, with the first verse of the song being sung by a man's voice, the second in a girl's voice, and a third verse in a frog's voice. In Dave Marsh's The Heart of Rock and Soul, it digs deeper into the song. I sing like a girl and I sing like a frog, Henry declares at the onset. And he's not kidding one bit. Soon enough, this guy you're feeling bad for because his society's given him no place to rest, his head, becomes a girl who lacks a lover and a song, then transmutes into a frog whose worries stem, I guess, from the lack of family, just as the swamps are drying up. In their entire careers, neither Prince nor Michael Jackson had come up with anything quite as strange. A little joke there from Marsh, but seemingly when the band decided to record Henry's tune, it was for fun and a novelty value, rather than any seriousness. When it came time to record, levon took up the lead vocal garth helped him create a gadget hybrid talk box to give him a frog like sound a talk box usually worked by singing into a tube and using a stringed instrument like a pedal steel or a guitar to alter the sound listen here Somewhat surprisingly, Rick wasn't present on the track. On bass, we are given Levon Helm, giving it his best shot according to records, and drums are filled by Bill Mundy, who we will learn about a little bit later. Garth Hudson is featured on saxophone and gives us that great jiving piano, and Robbie plays his usual electric guitar. Now, this song was chosen for the single, the lead single that is, and I guess you can see the appeal. It's a fun tune, it's effortless, It's danceable. That's something Levon definitely liked. But it's not the strongest song on the album, but it finally anchors the beginning. Next is Holy Cow, an Alan Toussaint tune. By this time, Toussaint and the band were quite close. As told by their previous collaborations, it only felt right to cover one of his songs out of respect. Originally, Holy Cow was a hit for Lee Dorsey in 1966. It makes sense with the New Orleans connection between Toussaint and Dorsey, Dorsey being a New Orleans singer. It also may have been the first time the band ever heard the song, Dorsey was quite popular in Europe in the 60s, especially at the time that Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks were touring Britain. Dorsey had big hits in the 60s with hits like Yeah Yeah and Working in the Coal Mine. As a child, Dorsey was friends with Fats Domino and served in the Navy during World War II. Afterwards, he became a boxer and in the 1950s retired and got involved in auto repair and singing in clubs at night. With little success in the early 60s, he met Alan Toussaint, who was a producer and writer, and led him to major Billboard success. Dorsey's version of Holy Cow is simple and bare in a good way. Take a listen.
2: I can't weep, I can't deep, Since you walked out on me, what you doing
0: to me you can see the appeal for the band to record this song New Orleans sound is definitely something that they love the horn arrangement, the soulful vocal simple but effective guitar great piano work with something very interesting in the harmony vocals. Peter Viney states that Dorsey's version, has an almost ska-like guitar slash, and had a very loud bass line carrying the song. There's a call and response arrangement, and it sounds very earthy, juxtaposed with the band's version, which is a little bit more complex and layered. There was some confusion originally around who held the lead vocal on the song, whether it was Richard or Rick. It's quite easy to hear now that it is Danko, with a specific cadence to his voice. Danko's voice is different here. He goes deeper, not quite his typical high tenor, and he puts on a pseudo accent that is far more Southern in flavor. Danko is joined in harmony by Levon and Richard in the chorus to great effect. Take a listen. From a guitar perspective, they also switched it up. Interestingly, Viney's observation about the ska-like guitar work on the offbeat on the original is quite interesting for the time. Robbie swaps that out for more riff-like work that we are accustomed to. He also adds a very wet guitar solo. Take a listen. Garth adds his organ work with Richard's electric piano to the mix with an additional horn section which includes Garth adding his tenor sax to the mix. The band's rendition of Holy Cow is an interesting update on the original, and it is surprising it didn't get more playtime in their live sets. The band had a storied history with the third track on the album, Share Your Love With Me. Originally played by Bobby Blue Bland in July of 1964, the Hawks began performing it before it became a hit and played it regularly including their famed set in Port Dover, Ontario as the Hawks. Ultimately, the song is covered again on vinyl by the band as a tribute to their love of R&B, especially for Richard and Rick. It was also one of the only songs from their old set list that made it onto the album. Bland had a history with the best in the business playing first with little junior parker and Johnny ace and being a driver and valet for BB King his first hit came with further up the road Which the band also covered and played on numerous occasions Bland had made a career at being one of the most diverse singers out there He could get hot and growl and belt out a heavy blues belter or slow it down and do it very sweet and quiet in a ballad form Take a listen
2: It's an eel that blows no good and it's a sad
0: This helped bland transcend a solely black audience and have crossover success with the white audiences of the time however share your love with me really hit big when it was covered by aretha franklin in 1969 and went to number 13 on the pop charts and number one on the soul chart for the band share your love with me provides more emotionality to the album which is full of fun very fitting for richard as he straddles the lead vocals here This was often one of his roles on the band's other releases was to remain the core of emotion on any of their releases. It also continues to show why Richard was so important to the group. Take a listen.
2: Well, it's an ill wind that blows
0: Maurizio states, in his review of the song, With Share Your Love, we get a sense of why the band always thought Richard Manuel as their lead singer. Why they had stuck with him through his struggles with substance and alcohol abuse. Why they were never quite the same when he was gone. Who else would have challenged the great Bland on his own turf? Manuel often used Bland as a reference for his own abilities as a singer. Bland's ability to snort and roar on lead vocals, but also occupy that space, like I mentioned, where he could slow it down and croon. That dexterity was something that Richard also tried to strive for, and ultimately became known for in the band. Listen to Richard's beautiful voice here.
2: You must be-
0: With Richard on the track, you have Garth providing accents on his keyboard that elevate and change it from its original. It also hints at his experimentation with more digital instrumentation. Critically the song was a success for Manuel and the band. Warm words from critic Grail Marcus said on their rendition, Share your love outclassed Bobby Blue Bland's original. Manuel had more to give to the song and Garth's knack of making his Lowry sound like a complete string section added great warmth. And Barney Hoskins had this to say. The quietly despairing Share Your Love With Me was the best thing Richard has done since sleeping. I know he was really proud of Share Your Love, says Joe Forno. It meant a lot to him when Grail Marcus wrote in Mystery Train he'd improved on the original because Bobby Bland was one of his idols. Now, the next song was Mystery Train, originally written and recorded by American blues musician Junior Parker in 1953. Parker was a noted Memphis blues singer and harmonica player. He was often characterized by his honeyed and velvet smooth voice. There is some confusion as to why the song is called Mystery Train, since it isn't mentioned in the song directly. Lyrically, the song features words similar to the Carter family's Worried Man blues, which is also based on an old Celtic ballad. Mystery Train was first recorded with Sun Records with the famed producer Sam Phillips at Memphis Recording Service in Memphis, Tennessee. The sessions were held over two months from September to October, with Parker on lead vocal. He is backed by his group, Blue Flames, take a listen.
2: Ride. 16 coaches long.
0: Heart. like parker had hoped it later became somewhat of a staple for early rockabilly groups thus when elvis decided to record it in 1955 it became a hit recorded by phillips again at the memphis recording service and released on august 20th 1955 as the b-side to i forget to remember to forget phillips was using the song to try to help elvis launch as a country star elvis was joined by his longtime collaborator scotty moore on guitar now, Elvis's version is a lot more rockabilly and more uses a country lead echoing more of a Merle Travis style. Take a listen.
2: Train I ride Sixteen coaches long Train I ride Sixteen coaches long Well, that lone black train
0: Moore also borrows the guitar riff from Junior Parker's Love My Baby that was originally played by Pat Hare. With the help of Elvis, Mystery Train became a classic and in 1955 acclaimed music named Presley's version the third most acclaimed song of all time. When the band took a stab at the song, they had to ask Sam Phillips for permission to record the song. Additionally, the band wanted to add lyrics to the track and in the end the band version added two much darker verses. Musically, Garth Hudson uses the clavinet to layer on the funk. Often credited to Stevie Wonder or even Billy Preston, Hudson was really one of the early innovators with the clavinet, and it shows here. Take a listen. On rhythm guitar is Rick Denko, a rare chains in rules. Danko provides those sturdy chords throughout and supplies soaring backup vocals. Richard Manuel is put behind the drum kit, and what makes the song different is the double drums. Now many people think obviously that it would be LeVon behind that second kit, but it was actually Bill Mundy. Mundy was born with the name Antonio Sales in San Francisco in 1942. A former Hells Angel member, he majored in music at UCLA and after graduating, spent three months as a timpaniist in the Los Angeles Philharmonic before becoming a studio musician. And for much of the 60s, he spent time all over the place from playing with Skip Batten, uh, Frank Zappa, and many more. In 1970, Mundy moved to upstate New York in Woodstock and he began working with a lot of local musicians as a session player. That's where he met the band. The dual drum sound of Mundy and Manuel bring a vital part of setting their version apart from any others. On lead guitar, Robertson is providing a very typical rockabilly style, something that he must have enjoyed doing, and later said, I tried to get that old Robert Johnson, Arthur up mood. Take a listen. John's version would remain a staple for the group, including a performance with Paul Butterfield on harp during the last waltz. And as Nick DiRizzio states in his review, Mystery Train is meant to be played loud and if the tracks were running right behind your coach. And Robert Palmer states that this is one of the band's masterpieces. The intro which seems to trail on so ideologically before the rhythm starts up and helps prepare the listener for the bluesy dream imagery. It sounds like Robert Johnson or Sonny Boy Williamson. Now to finish off the first side of the record, the band went in a different direction. There was definitely a love of film, especially from Robbie and Richard, thus their cover of The Third Man theme makes some sort of sense. The theme comes from the 1949 British noir film The Third Man, starring director and actor Orson Welles and leading man Joseph Cotton. The Third Man was one of the most successful films at the British box office in 49 and was showered in America with praise for its innovative camera work, direction, and acting. There was also some other innovation with the score, which was composed by Anton Karas, who was an unknown Vienna performer at the time. Carol Reed, the director, wanted to avoid the heavily orchestrated waltzes. And while one night in a Vienna wine garden, he heard zitherist named Anton Karras. He then became very interested in the melodic nature of his music. And for those unfamiliar with a Zether, It's a string instrument consisting of many strings stretched across a thin, flat body, and it's played by strumming or plucking the strings, similar to a guitar. Karas' Zyther fit perfectly for the film, and film critic Roger Ebert later stated, has there ever been a film where the music more perfectly suited the action than in Carol Reed's The Third Band? Anton Karras created the theme by rearranging an eight-measure melody from a Zyther tutorial book. Take a listen. When the soundtrack was released the third man theme was the biggest selling single in the United States selling over four million copies in 1950 when it topped the US charts for 11 weeks now the band's version was quite different it's almost bubbly and popier. it's comedic in nature and Peter Viney stated the third man theme was regarded as almost comedy pastiche at the time of its release take a listen seems that garth had a lot of fun experimenting with this and various organs and pianos and early experimentation with synth there really isn't much to add about it you could say that maybe it's laying the groundwork for what they did with the last waltz theme you can certainly see the similarities as grail marcus states that moondog matinee contains some of the band's best music the instrumental third man theme might have been a hit that they never had though it would have to have crossed over to the easy listening charts to make it With half the album completed, the band took a break before agreeing to finish the album in Los Angeles. Robbie and Dominique were invited to vacation with David Geffen and Joni Mitchell. The two were roommates. This also marked a further convergence of Robbie from the rest of the band in terms of lifestyle. Robbie began to surround himself with a different type of people no longer Southern folk and blue collar individuals, but people of a higher class and from the West Coast elite. Robbie was more and more interested in getting involved with the LA crowd, and it began to rub certain people in the band, especially Leave on the Wrong Way. Dominique and Robbie were now quite friendly with the pair and agreed to vacation. They met in Paris, where originally Dominique and Robbie met, so it was great to get back. They stayed at the historic Ritz Hotel and Palace Verdome. The hotel was constructed behind the facade of an 18th century townhouse. It was among the first hotels in Europe to provide an ensuite bathroom, electricity, and a telephone for each room. It quickly established a reputation for luxury and attracted clientele that included royals and politicians, writers, film stars, and singers. So you definitely can see the glitz and glamor. Not only were the accommodations top-notch, so was the food. Geffen had made reservations at the La Tour de Ardenne overlooked the Notre Dame Cathedral. The restaurant claims that it was founded in 1582. It was often visited by Henry IV, and to this day holds a Michelin star, which means it ranks in the top in the world. Robbie remembers Dominique and I had never experienced anything quite on this level. They brought the wine list to David and he chose a chateau Marot, 1928. "You only live once," he said. They spent their time roaming the streets, looking at the architecture, absorbing the history and the art of the museums, and of course, playing a ton of music. Robbie also went searching for Mort Schumann. Schumann was a partner of Doc Pomus in a very successful songwriting partnership. Schumann had left for Paris after his wife cheated on him and left with all of his money. He created a successful show called Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris, which was well received and made him a celebrity. Gavin Robertson and Schumann dined at Le Grand Giffour, an old highly respected restaurant in France, so famous that Napoleon ate there, as did Victor Hugo. They spoke about Robbie's first interaction with Palmish and Schumann at the Brill Building in New York as a 16-year-old with Roddy Hawkins. And as if the vacation didn't sound grand enough, they left for Cannes. The world-famous film festival takes place in the city and it happened to be in full swing. They dined with the comedian Richard Pryor and enjoyed their time. And from this trip, Joni Mitchell produced her 1974 top 20 hit, Free Man in Paris, which is about David Geffen, even if she never mentioned him by name. Take a listen here.
2: I see it. He said you just can't win it. Everybody's in it for their own gain. You can't please them all. There's always somebody calling you down. I do my best and I do good business. There's a lot of people asking for my time. They're trying to get ahead. They're trying to be a good friend.
0: Now, it was also during this trip in France that Geffen relentlessly tried to get Robbie to move to California, specifically Malibu. Robbie wasn't convinced, but he knew that Dominique wanted to move and he thought, you know, it might be a great change of pace. And with the vacation coming to an end and lots to think about, the band got ready to head back into the studio, this time conveniently in Los Angeles, to complete their next studio album. There was a lot of pressure for the band and there was also a lot to process. A lot of questions the band obviously had a dedicated fan base and offers to play live were there and still coming in however they were in the studio working on a covers album would it be great enough for them to continue to be one of the top bands in North America I deal
2: in dreamers and telephone screamers. lately I wonder what I do it for if I had my way I just walk
0: If listening to Band of History, a little bit different this week, we are breaking this album into two parts, mainly because uh, it's a bigger album than I originally thought. Uh, not that the, you know, the track list is any bigger, but you have two versions, or sometimes more of the songs, and it would be a disservice to the original versions or the people that made those versions originally famous not to talk about them. It also shows a great uh, insight into the band and what they listened to and what they liked from you know junior parker to bobby blue Bland. Uh, so we will go into the next episode finishing off the second half of the album as well as some other great interesting tidbits from that time including some guest appearances by the beatles um you know don't butcher me for mispronouncing the french names uh I'm Canadian, but I don't speak French that well, so hopefully that didn't offend anybody. No offense intended. Um, you know, the, we're going to continue doing the podcast here. We have a lot of great stuff, uh, upcoming interviews, other episodes, cool projects, something for Canada Day. Um, unfortunately, because of COVID, which is another reason why this has been a hard episode to make. We're trying to get through a lot of things in the real life, so the podcast that de- takes. You know, a side seat right now, but we're, we're going to get it out to you. Uh, we're, we're, we continue to be on every social media platform at the band podcast, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We've got tons of great feedback from people, a lot of people asking for the next episode. So we hope you enjoy it um, and, you know, continuing to work on a bunch of those cool projects. Um, make sure you check out pantheon podcast the network that i'm on there's a bunch of other great music podcasts a lot better than mine um i've made some guest appearances on a few i just talked about rock of ages on a podcast i'll link that in the show notes from one of my friends at pantheon um so definitely go and check out all those amazing shows so thanks again for listening to this episode. We will get part two of Moondog Matinee uh, in the upcoming weeks here. But until then, I really hope you like this episode. Stay safe out there. And the
2: Made us feel right at home Like we were next to kid Riding in his pocket That night we saw shine. His light still lives in that barn And Levon's own still lives
1: in that barn, and Levon's on my mind. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.